American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the first American to be canonized, Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini. She was a tireless and tiny Italian nun who knew she wanted to be a missionary from an early age, and throughout her life, in spite of great obstacles put in her way, she never doubted that God would provide. And, by the evidence, she was right. He did. Now, very frequently, he provided only after it seemed all of the doors were closed to her success, but he provided. Her experience can really be summed up in one line she wrote later in life. We spend millions, though we haven't any money. It was so true. (laughs) She was constantly begging and fundraising for money to purchase a building or maintain a school, hospital, or orphanage. Sometimes begging wasn't necessary, as in a few instances when people who heard her talk about her dreams and visions just donated things like buildings. But what she accomplished, compared to how little she had, was just inspiring. And it's a bit embarrassing to the rest of us. All right, so let's tell her story. She was born Maria Francesca Cabrini on July 15th, 1850. Okay, hang on right there. You know who else was born in 1850? Sister Blandina Segale. But she was born in Genoa. You're right. Uh, She was amazing. And her parents brought her over to the U.S. when she was four. Later, she became known as the fastest nun in the West. Sister Blandina is also a pint-sized Italian dynamo nun who had a huge impact as a missionary for Christ in this country. Folks should really listen to episodes 57 and 58 for the story of Sister Blandina. That's right. She was so awesome. We had to tell her story in two episodes. Absolutely. But this episode is about Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini, so let's return to her story. She was the youngest of 13 children born to Italian Catholic parents in Sant'Angelo Logigiano, a town south of Milan in Italy. But she was born two months premature. Now, two months premature is pretty early for babies these days, but with modern medicine, they have a pretty good chance of making it. Back then... Babies born two months premature had very little chance of surviving more than a day or two. And those very few who did survive past the first few days were usually underdeveloped and destined to suffer from frail health for their entire life. Most of them wouldn't live past childhood. The irony is that while Maria Francesca was the one most likely to die due to being so premature, she was one of only four out of the 13 of her of she and her siblings who survived past adolescence. That's crazy, but it wouldn't be the last time that she defied the odds. Ah, uh, no. But though she would live to her 67th year, she did suffer from fragile health her entire life. Which further underscores how incredible her accomplishments were. Seriously. But her zeal for missionary work showed up early in life. 
When she was about six, she was observed one day putting violets into paper boats and then launching the boats into a fast-moving canal near an uncle's home. When asked what she was doing, she said that the violets were missionaries and she was sending them to India and China. Beginning when she was 13, she was educated by the Daughters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and after she graduated cum laude from their school, she desired to enter the order. But though the sisters loved her zeal and desire, they had to decline her application because of her frail health. Instead, she was made headmistress of an orphanage in Codogno, Italy. There, she attracted other women to live with her in community, living a religious style of life. In 1877, when she was 27 years old, she and a number of the other women in her community took religious vows. It was at this point that she took the name Francis Xavier in honor of her model saint, the great Jesuit missionary to the Far East, St. Francis Xavier. In 1880, three years later, Cabrini and seven other women formed the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, with Cabrini as the first Mother Superior, from this point until her death 37 years later, she was known as Mother Cabrini, and she took as her motto Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's almost as though St. Paul sort of just wrote those words for her. <laughs> no, you're not kidding. I know. Over the next several years, Mother Cabrini and her sisters built up her order. She also wasted no time filling the needs she saw, establishing orphanages, schools, and even a hospital. But as far as she was concerned, the past was prelude. Everything she was doing was preparation for becoming a missionary to China, just like Francis Xavier. In 1887, she finally approached the Holy Father, Pope Leo XIII, for permission to become a missionary to China. The Holy Father was already familiar with the pint-sized nun with frail health through reports he'd received from Bishop Giovanni Scalabrini of Piacenza, so the Holy Father was well disposed to granting her wish to become a missionary, but not to China. The Holy Father was also aware of another mission field that he believed Mother Cabrini should work, America. So in speaking with Mother Cabrini about becoming a missionary, he said to her, not to the East, but to the West. Now, before we go further with Mother Cabrini's story, we should give some background on what had been going on in Italy over the 30 or 40 years prior to Mother Cabrini approaching Pope Leo XIII and what it meant for Italians who immigrated to America. Absolutely. So from the 1840s into the 1870s, war raged up and down the Italian peninsula as Italian nationalist forces fought to unify the peninsula under one government for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire. Unification was more or less accomplished in 1871 with the annihilation of the Papal States and Rome being named as the capital of the new Kingdom of Italy. Pius IX, who was Pope at the time, refused to accept the new situation, and Pope Leo XIII hadn't been much more keen on it. The upheaval of this period led to instability and an increase in emigration. A few hundred thousand Italian fled the peninsula for the United States before 1880. But even more Italians left in the 1880s and 1890s, millions more, due to a number of factors mostly economic. Many intended to return home after 
working for a while and making money, and over time, up to half did return to Italy, at least temporarily, but America was the place to go to get out of poverty. These Italians sailing for America frequently had a number of issues, conditions, and problems that had plagued previous waves of immigrants to America, especially the Irish. Little education, low skill level, poverty, illiteracy, and even illness. All of these made life very difficult in America, but the Italians had an additional barrier. Hardly any of them spoke any English at all. Granted, plenty of the Irish spoke only Gaelic, and of those who spoke English, their dialect could be so thick as to be unrecognizable as English, but the Irish had more familiarity with the majority tongue of America, so on this score, the Italians had it a bit tougher. But as these sudden waves of Italian immigrants poured into America, which mostly meant New York, in the 1880s and 1890s, they had a very rude welcome. For one, those who already held the low-skilled jobs weren't happy to see more laborers showing up to take their jobs. Since they couldn't speak English, they were frequently cheated and swindled in every which way. Families who had been accustomed to an open-air lifestyle in a Mediterranean climate were suddenly living in stuffy, high-rise apartments. Entire families would often sleep, eat, work, and do everything, everything in a one-room apartment. Education was sparse at best. Nutrition was poor. Many died of tuberculosis or other diseases. Children would be left behind as orphans. Some parents simply abandoned their children in the streets. The men frequently worked in situations that were tantamount to slavery. A boss, known as a padrone, he would control the contracts, the wages, the working hours, and sometimes even the food supply for the workers whom he controlled. And since the workers couldn't speak the language and were generally uneducated and illiterate, they had no choice. Things were very bad for Italian immigrants in America. As waves of Italians were flooding into New York, they would concentrate in a few places, and one of those places was along Mulberry Street, known today as Little Italy. The nearby Catholic parish was Holy Transfiguration, so those Italian immigrants who were still Catholic attended Mass there. But the regular parishioners of Holy Transfiguration didn't want these unsightly Italians in their pews on Sundays. Also, the Italians had their own traditional hymns and festivals and their own ways of doing things, so there was tension. Archbishop Michael Corrigan's solution was to allow the Italian priests to offer Mass and hold the traditional Italian festivities only in the basement of Holy Transfiguration, but they could not use the main church. Archbishop Corrigan did not have a high opinion of Italian immigrants, and at least initially, he was not of a mind to treat them very well. In fact, in correspondence with Pope Leo XIII, Archbishop Corrigan wrote in disparaging terms of the Italian immigrants, and he admitted to only allowing them to use the basement of Holy Transfiguration. But, he said, he would allow them to have their own church if they could raise money from within their own community. It was a cruel gambit, because everyone knew they had no money, but he stuck with it for a long time. Archbishop Corrigan's unfortunate behavior toward the Italians was even more puzzling because he would have grown up during the years when Archbishop John Hughes, one of my favorites, faced a similar problem with a huge wave of Irish immigrants. They were uneducated, uncouth, starving, impoverished, and unskilled. Archbishop Hughes fought tooth and nail to improve the condition of these immigrants and to gain respect within the society. 
By the time Horrigan was archbishop, things had improved dramatically for the Irish. One Irishman, the prominent businessman William R. Grace, was actually elected mayor twice in the 1880s, and he did a lot to root out corruption and push back against the power of Tammany Hall. We told his epic story in episode 24 of this podcast. Check it out. So all we can do is shake our heads about why Archbishop Corrigan would have treated the Italian immigrants with nearly the same contempt that non-Catholic New Yorkers had treated the Irish immigrants just a few decades earlier. But his attitude did change. Eventually. Yes, eventually. And it was thanks to Mother Cabrini. In a nice twist, it seems that Archbishop Corrigan's bad attitude toward the Italians played a role in Mother Cabrini's coming to America. Pope Leo XIII, of course being Italian himself, wasn't pleased with what Corrigan had to say about the Italian immigrants, nor how he was treating them. So, since the local bishop wasn't offering spiritual help to the Italians flooding into New York, Pope Leo took it upon himself in a way. He sent Mother Cabrini and her sisters, hence, not to the East, but to the West. And with that, we come back to Mother Cabrini and her missionaries of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. In 1889, Mother Cabrini and seven of her sisters boarded a ship and crossed the Atlantic. They arrived in New York in March 1889 after a very stormy and miserable crossing. But when they arrived, the lodging they had been promised was not available. Instead, they were put up for that first night in a seedy hotel in the Italian ghetto. They didn't sleep a wink. The next day, the eight intrepid women went to call upon Archbishop Corrigan. They were eager to see about the lodging they were promised, as well as the orphanage they were told would be theirs. The Archbishop gave them a cold reception. He informed his sisters that there was no money to support their orphanage in the city. He didn't want them to attempt to open an orphanage, and that they really should just turn around and return to Italy. (laughs) Well, that went over like a lead balloon. Mother Cabrini basically told the Archbishop that they had come at the direction of the Pope, so they were staying. They would not return to Italy. Upset, but accepting that powers beyond him were at work, Archbishop Corrigan allowed that they could work in schools, but he was still sour on the orphanage. However, to his credit, he did set them up in more appropriate lodgings in the Convent of the Sisters of Charity. We're hitting on a theme here. Mother Rose Philippine Duchenne was not provided the lodging she had been promised when she arrived, and we talked about that in episode 50. And don't forget about Mother Benedict and her sisters who formed Regina Laudis Monastery. Their story was told in episode 76. They also were not treated well or giving the lodging they expected when they arrived. God truly wants to test all those who trust in him, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, he does. Well, it worked in Mother Cabrini's case. What happened next became kind of a theme for Mother Cabrini. Things changed rapidly. Within months, they had a band of orphan girls whom they were responsible for. They knew they'd need a larger home as their charges were increasing, but they had no money to buy one. No need. The first miraculous breakthrough came when the Countess of Cessnola, a New York socialite and the wife of an Italian nobleman, donated a building on fashionable East 59th Street. The bishop was incredulous, but again, he accepted the reality of the situation as God's will. As Mother Cabrini and her sisters proved themselves tireless in fundraising, begging on street corners, and even going door to door, Archbishop Corrigan began to change his attitude towards them. He converted from being a hindrance to a helper, actively supporting their work, and even helping them establish more schools and orphanages. 
So the sisters expanded from there. They raised the money to purchase from the Jesuits a 450-acre property along the Hudson River a number of miles north of town. This they turned into an orphanage and a school for girls. The Jesuits sold this property well under its value because, well, their well had run dry. Mother Cabrini trusted that God would provide, and she duly prayed for a solution to this problem. Within a few weeks, she discovered a natural spring on the property. Of course, that (laughs) spring still serves the property today. This wouldn't be the last time she found a spring on property where previous owners had given up due to a lack of water. It was another of her themes. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) After just a few years of growth and success in New York, the Archbishop of Chicago invited Mother Cabrini to come to Chicago. Chicago, like many cities in America, was experiencing a similar problem with Italian immigrants as New York had been facing. In Chicago, the sisters were asked to take over a school for Italian children. Very few of them were attending school at the time. The sisters did so happily, and they raised the money to run it. In Chicago, Mother Cabrini saw again the need for a hospital, so she raised the money to buy a building. During negotiations for this particular purchase, Mother Cabrini showed her wise-as-serpents side. She suspected that the sellers were overstating the size of the building so that they might increase the sale price. So, late one night, she and her sisters fashioned a measuring tape with which they carefully measured the building. With her suspicions confirmed, the next day, she presented a revised contract that reflected the true value of the building. They bought the building for a more fair value, and it became Christopher Columbus Hospital. From then on, while the headquarters for the order officially remained in New York, Chicago would really become a major base of operations for Mother Cabrini as she worked her way across the country. She visited more cities and established more schools, orphanages, summer camps, and hospitals in cities like Denver, New Orleans, and Seattle. She also made about 25 crossings back to Europe where she raised money for her American work, and she helped establish hospitals and orphanages there once World War I began. Back in America, she was invited to New Orleans in 1892 to establish a school and orphanage for Italian children. This was just over a year after 11 Italian men were lynched in what was the largest mass lynching ever in the American South. So the situation desperately needed her mother's touch, and she provided it. In Denver, she founded a number of institutions, including an orphanage. And in a reprise of what happened with the Jesuit property in New York, she bought a large piece of property outside of Golden, Colorado, that the owners were selling for less than it was worth, again, because there was no water on the property. For two years after the 1910 purchase of the property, the sisters had to haul water up from the creek. That is, until Mother Cabrini again found a natural spring where there had been nothing. Another great story that just typifies her work comes out of Seattle. When Mother and her sisters were looking to set up an orphanage in Seattle, Mother Cabrini had a dream in which she saw a beautiful house on a hilltop. The next day, while she and her sisters were walking, she waved down a limo, right? And asked for her one does. <laughs> and asked for a ride back to the convent. The woman in the limo consented and the sisters climbed aboard. Mother Cabrini told the woman about her dream, describing the house in detail. When they arrived at the convent, the woman said, Mother Cabrini, that house you dreamed of is mine. I own it. 
I never thought of parting with it. But if I may be allowed to enter your holy house for a moment and receive a glass of water in the name of our Lord, your little orphans shall have their home with my blessing. Later in life, when she was asked how she acquired such a property for her orphanage, she said, with three treasures, my love, a dream, and a glass of water in his name. That's just pretty much perfect. She was a shrewd and single-minded woman of business and also a woman of constant prayer who relied utterly on the providence of God. And though we haven't highlighted it, she did all of this while suffering perpetually from ill health. She also was a prayer warrior. Her sisters reported that she was often found in the chapel, communing so deeply with God that she could not be roused or distracted. All in all, through her hard work, shrewd business sense, and utter reliance on God, she personally founded 67 different institutions all over the country, a few in Europe, and even one in Nicaragua. Needless to say, this means we've only barely scratched the surface of the amazing stories about her efforts. I'm pretty sure she'll come up again in future episodes. <laughs> yeah. Mother Cabrini died at Columbus Hospital on December 22nd, 1917. She was working for others to the end, preparing Christmas candy for children when complications from malaria worsened and took her life. Her cause for canonization opened in the early 1930s. She was beatified in 1938, and after a second miracle was attributed to her intercession, she was canonized by Pope Pius XII in 1950. 100 years after her birth. Since she had become a naturalized American citizen in 1909, this made her the first American to be raised to the altar. Appropriately, given her missionary spirit, there are many shrines to Mother Cabrini all over the United States and even the world. Of the life of a missionary, Mother Cabrini once wrote to one of her sisters, When you are tired and worn out, praise God. Thinking that, for a missionary, only that day is blessed in which she has worked hard and suffered for a holy cause, which is that of the missions of our holy vocation, cooperating with Christ for the salvation of souls. May we all strive after her example to live lives so dedicated to cooperating with Christ for the salvation of souls. St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, pray for us. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noelle Huster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. 
Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.